0: Well, that's a great thing to think about and to sing about, that the Lord refreshes our soul. He's the only one who can do that. It's not something superficial, just an emotional thing. He takes truth and by His Spirit brings wholeness and refreshment to our innermost being, our souls. So what a a joyful thing that is for us to know the Lord does that. We have plenty of times where we need that desperately to have our souls refreshed. I trust our time and studying God's Word today will certainly refresh your souls. Once I complete a particular study, as we recently did, the Gospel of John, the question arises from some people, Pastor, how do you decide what to preach next on Sundays? Well, in one sense, I'm choosing from a limited pool. I'm always thinking through what passages of Scripture What books of the Bible to go through. In other words, I'm not looking for some helpful hints for life to pass along to you or to put it differently. I'm not trying to identify some strategies or methodologies on how to be happy and fulfilled. I'm certainly not scouring the headlines to see what topic might give me the opportunity to make some interesting commentary. No, none of that. I do from time to time, maybe choose to address a particular theological topic, but overall, what I'm trying to do is consider what Bible book to preach through next. And there's good reason for choosing from that pool. It's because of Second Timothy three verses 16 and 17, familiar words to us, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God, God's people, can be equipped and ready for every good work. Scripture accomplishes that by the Spirit of God. There's an implication, though, that flows from that verse I just read about Scripture being inspired and profitable for all those things, the implication is that there is a difference based upon that verse between true believers and unbelievers. True believers see Scripture as their final authority on all issues it addresses, not our reasoning capability, not our emotions or feelings, not empirical studies or science or anything else, For God's true people, the final authority on all issues it addresses is His Word. That separates believers from non-believers. And one more thing about believers, true believers are impacted by what Scripture says. So therefore, we preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse. Otherwise, as you know, known as expository preaching, simply defined, that just means we're proclaiming what the Bible says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies to our lives. There's actually a verse in the Old Testament that is a very familiar one to Bible students and expositors, and it does summarize what we seek to do still today. It's Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach His statutes and ordinances in Israel. Three things. Study it, the Word of God. Seek to practice it. And then proclaim it, teach it. Well, in my 16-plus years here at Twin City Bible Church, I've had the privilege of doing that, of studying many passages of Scripture and seeking to practice what I learn in my own life and then teaching Bible passages and Bible books to you. I was just thinking through all that we've studied in those years here. We've gone through Ecclesiastes, Hosea, Joel, Mark, John, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, much of Titus, Hebrews, 1 John, Jude. Now we're in Revelation on Wednesday nights and many individual psalms along the way and other individual passages, both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what we've been doing. So with that in mind, it's time to start a new exposition and to keep that going. And I've chosen First and Second Thessalonians to be the books that we study now, starting today with First Thessalonians. You can join me there. I believe we'll find our study of these two books to be challenging and helpful to our walks with Christ. So today, we begin 1 Thessalonians, which is possibly the earliest of Paul's epistles that he wrote. Now, it only makes sense that I set the stage for our study of this book by giving some general information about the book and even some information about the city that it was written to, Thessalonica, and how Paul connected to that city and so forth. So let's begin by explaining that, Paul's connection to the believers in this city, Thessalonica, which means we're going to review some history. Now, I know reviewing history can be a bit tedious, okay? So I will make it as brief as possible, And don't worry about remembering every detail that I throw out here for a little while. Just get the point, the overall point, about why Paul wrote this letter. But we'll start this little historical review by parachuting into Paul's second missionary journey. Scripture records three missionary journeys that Paul went on to preach the gospel. On the second missionary journey, he was for a time in Asia Minor. But the point also came then for him to move on, and he began to make efforts to go to the next place of ministry. But he found himself hindered by the Holy Spirit in the choices he was making. He tried to go south into the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit prevented him from going there. Acts 16 tells us that he then tried to go north into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing that. So he just kind of moved a little more west. ended up at a place called Troas, the westernmost city of Asia Minor, probably somewhere around the spring of 49 AD. That date will be on the exam, so get that. While in Troas, though, wondering what to do, he had a famous vision, you'll remember, a vision of a man beckoning him to come across the sea. That was the Aegean Sea there to come across the sea over into Europe, the first part of which was Macedonia, inviting Paul to come and and preach the gospel over here. So that's what he did. We find that in Acts chapter 16, verse 10. Luke is writing here and said, When Paul had seen the vision, immediately, Luke writes, we sought to go then into Macedonia, Luke was there, concluding that God had called us, to preach the gospel over there to them. And that was a very crucial event in history because as a result of that, the gospel went west and evangelization of Europe began. Well, after crossing the sea and arriving at a port over there, Paul was part of a missionary party. It was Luke who read, wrote what I just wrote in, read in Acts. It was Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, part of this missionary team, Once they got across on the other side, then they went on a 10-mile journey to the north over there to the large city of Philippi. And they enjoyed some successful ministry there in Philippi for about two months. But Paul's preaching there of the gospel sparked a riot. And as a result, he and Silas were seized, they were beaten, placed in stocks in the city's jail, and we know what happened there, right? The book of Acts, we're familiar with what happened next. God miraculously released them from the jail by means of an earthquake. And the result of that was the Philippian jailer who had witnessed all of that came to faith in Christ. Well, Paul and Silas had to leave Philippi, though, under pressure from the city officials to get out. And so they went westward some more to Thessalonica. That was about 100 miles away. It was a five-day walk for them at that time. And they made that walk on a famous pathway called the Ignatian Way that crossed Macedonia from east to west. Now, just a word about Thessalonica. It had been there for a while. It was founded in 315 B.C. by one of Alexander the Great's generals, a general named General Cassander who named the city after his wife, who happened to be the stepsister of Alexander the Great, named the city then after her, Thessalonica. The region, the large region at that time, became a Roman province at some point after all that, about 170 years later, a Roman province. And when it became a Roman province, the Romans made Thessalonica the capital of that region. Eventually, the Romans decided to not station troops there and to let the city go ahead and be a free city, a free free Greek city. That decision by the Romans happened in 42 BC. So that meant that the city would not be occupied by Roman troops anymore, and the city was granted a large measure of self-government. The citizens then chose their own city authorities called polytarchs, polytarchs. Now, by the time Paul got there, Thessalonica was a large city, 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people made up of native Greeks, some Romans living there, Jews, sailors, travelers, tradesmen, businessmen. The city's still there today. It's the modern city Thessaloniki in northern Greece. It's one of Greece's most important cities actually today. But in Paul's day, it was a thriving center of commerce because of its location. It was located at the head of a gulf plus at the mouth of a river, so it was a thriving seaport, and that was conducive to commerce. And like I said, Thessalonica was located on that famous pathway, the Ignatian Way. That was a major highway, east-west highway It was the Interstate 40 of the day of the Roman Empire. And therefore, Thessalonica, because of all this, was a prime location for the spread of the gospel. It was different than Philippi, though. Philippi did not have a large enough Jewish population to support a synagogue there. But in Thessalonica, it was different. The Jewish presence in Thessalonica was significant and influential. Pause that just for a moment. Let me tell you something sad there about what happened many centuries later. I mean, through the centuries, the city had to endure a lot of attacks of a lot of different groups and nations, but in 1941, the Nazis captured this city and deported the 60,000 Jews that they rounded up and had them all executed. Sad. But back to Paul's day and his arrival there, this large commercially successful city. He did what he customarily did. And since it was different from Philippi and it had a significant Jewish population, it had a synagogue. So Paul did what he normally did when he began a ministry. He went to the synagogue, began to preach the gospel there. The book of Acts tells us that Paul spent three Sabbaths in a row there Arguing from the Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah and how the Messiah had to to die and then rise from the dead, and went past that and preached that Jesus of Nazareth was that very promised Messiah. And as a result of gospel preaching in the synagogue, some Jews came to Christ. Some of the Gentile proselytes to Judaism came to Christ. Some of the uh, upper class, uh, Acts tells us, some of the upper class Greek women came to Christ just from Paul preaching in the synagogue, he also preached outside the synagogue to the pagan Gentiles, the ones that had not converted over to Judaism, pagan Gentiles. And many of them were also converted right out of, directly out of their idol worship. If you look to verse 9 there in chapter 1, you see a comment about that. At the end of verse 9, it says, you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So Paul was there for more than just the three Sabbaths when he was preaching in the synagogue. He had a significant time there before he left, long enough to provide pastoral care to the converts that had come to Christ, long enough for his heart to develop a deep affection for these Thessalonian believers. But while he was there, there was some turmoil that came up in the city. The Jews who did not come to Christ, they did not like the fact that Paul was so successful in his preaching. They did not like that Paul was stealing away some of the proselytes, the Gentile proselytes. So they gathered up a a gang of men that they rounded up from the marketplace, essentially just some thugs, went to the house of a man named Jason who was a believer, a man who had come to Christ, and some other Christians were gathered there. So they went to that house thinking they would find those preachers there. They didn't find them. They were frustrated over that, so they went ahead and just seized Jason along with some of the other Christians, and they hauled them before the city authorities, the polytarchs. And there these Jews falsely accused these people of treason. That's Acts chapter 17. Well, that was a difficult thing for the city officials to deal with because Rome had left them, Rome had turned it over to their rule, And they would leave it that way unless there was turmoil going on. If the city failed to maintain order, the Romans would have to come intervene again. So there was a threat now to Thessalonica's status as a free city. So the civil leaders decided the best way to handle it was not to make a big deal out of it, just to take a pledge or a bond, a money sort of payment from Jason and the others, and then let them all go with a promise that they wouldn't cause trouble. Well, Paul and Silas decided that was really the indication that it was time for them to leave, so that no trouble would be stirred up by the Jews, so the city wouldn't lose its free status, so that Jason and the other Christians wouldn't lose their money. So they left. Paul and Silas did. And from Thessalonica, they traveled west some more, about 50 more miles, to Berea, and they ministered in the synagogue there Had prosperous ministry there for about seven weeks, and it would have lasted longer. Everything was fine, but some of those upset Jews from Thessalonica found out where Paul and Silas went, and they came to Berea and stirred up trouble there. So Paul had to depart again. Paul went on to Athens from there. Silas and Timothy didn't go with him at first. Eventually, they joined him there in Athens, but Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. I said, I want you to go back there, encourage the Christians there. It, it's me. I'm the main troublemaker they're looking for. You'll be fine. Go back, continue to encourage the Christians, and then find me again and bring a report about how they're doing. It, it seems evidently Silas was sent on a similar mission back to Philippi. That sending of Silas and Timothy out was about three months now after Paul had left the city of Thessalonica. Well, while those two men were away, Paul's ministry in Athens was not going well. It was essentially a fruitless ministry. So he left there and went to the city of Corinth, where Acts 18 tells us that he had a a more prosperous ministry there for about 18 to 20 months in Corinth. Timothy did find Paul in Corinth and returned to him there with his report about the Thessalonian believers, and it was an encouraging report. A thrilling report of how well they were doing. And that report prompted Paul then to sit down and write his first letter to the Thessalonians, what we're studying. And that writing likely took place somewhere in late A.D. 50 or early A.D. 51, somewhere in there. We're going to find several topics surface in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Several theological topics, not, to, not the least of which is eschatology. But because of all these topics and everything he's saying to shepherd these people, you could categorize these as church epistles. Really, what we find in these books is a a catalog of the marks of a healthy, growing church. So today, we are jumping in, and we're going to go all the way to the end of verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. I wonder how we're going to get through it. Now, keep in mind, this book is actually a letter. Okay, they they didn't have phones, (laughs) praise the Lord. Can you imagine that? Wouldn't that be great? They didn't have phones, they didn't have email, they didn't have texting. Letters, real letters, written letters were very important for communication. That's how you, you bridge the gap. I mean, I get texts from ministry partners and friends in Europe and South Africa and places like that all the time. You know, immediate messages, immediate firebacker response. Not in that day. Very important for these letters. It was very important for Paul. He hoped to see these Thessalonians again. So the letters he wrote were a way for him to express his love for them and as well to pass on teaching that they needed. Now the form of this letter and his other letters follows the customs of the day. Different from our letters, we tend to put the recipient at the top, and we don't put our name until the very bottom. Not not their letters. Greek correspondence began with what's called a salutation, which is verse 1 here, which would include the name of the author right up front, the name of the recipient, and then a greeting. Those are the three elements of verse 1, but we understand that this is more than just a letter. It's a It's a letter that's related to gospel ministry, so I'm just going to tweak the naming of those three elements accordingly. We're going to look at, number one, the servants of the gospel, number two, the recipients of the gospel, and number three, the essence of the gospel. Here's the first element of this salutation, the servants, number one, the servants of the gospel. Verse one, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, these three men, the letters coming from them essentially. These three men together were the founders of the church in Thessalonica. So all three were together by this point when the correspondence was written. They're all entering in on it, but no doubt Paul was the primary person responsible for its composition. So some brief comments about these three men. The name Paul is a Roman name that means little. We don't think of the Apostle Paul that way, but his name means little. That's his Roman name. His Hebrew name was Saul. Now we find for the first time those two brought together in Acts chapter 13, verse 9. In Acts 13, verse 9, the context is the Apostle was confronting a man who was uh, opposing the gospel ministry, and it says that Saul, that's what he was known as, Saul, who was also known as Paul, so there they're the grouped together, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his eyes on that man and confronted him. Double names. Double names were popular during that era. It's not a surprise to find out that he had both a Roman and a Hebrew name, two names that he would have had from birth. Some people misunderstand that, think that when he got saved, that somebody changed his name to Paul. Likely always had both those names. But something is noticeably absent here. And that is his official title. He doesn't say the Apostle Paul or an Apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul began many of his other, other epistles that way, but he didn't do it in First and 2 Thessalonians and the letter to the Philippians, the churches to the Macedonia area. Evidently, he did not need to defend his authority to those churches like he had to elsewhere. I'm not saying there was no opposition to him in Thessalonica. It's just that it was not this opposition. They did not attack his apostleship. So he didn't need to mention that. He just simply and humbly identifies himself as Paul. And in the same attitude of humility, he links in his two co-workers with himself to make the point that he saw them all as equals. That second man, Silvanus, that's another name for Silas. He was a Greek-speaking Jew by birth. Sylvanus was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He exercised a prophetic ministry in Acts chapter 15. You'll remember on Paul's uh, missionary journey that he split from Barnabas. They had a disagreement. Barnabas went one way. Paul went on on his journey, and he chose Silas to take Barnabas' place on the second missionary journey. And Silas was a great partner. He was known for his reliability. He was known for his faithfulness. He even was known for his willingness to risk his life in the service of Christ in Acts chapter 15. He was an associate founder of the church in Thessalonica. And because of that, he did endure cruel beatings, just like Paul. Imprisonment. Pursuit by an angry mob. You see that in Acts 16 and 17. And Paul's third colleague, the other man, the third man was Timothy. We know Timothy, Paul's protege, Paul's young disciple in the faith, Paul's son in the faith, he called him. Timothy was a native of a city in Asia Minor. His Jewish mother, though, became a Christian. His father, a Greek, likely did not become a believer. But Timothy came to Christ, maybe through the ministry of his mother and grandmother that we see mentioned in Acts 16 and 2 Timothy 1, or maybe they just strengthened him in his faith. He might have come to faith through Paul's preaching on Paul's first missionary journey. We don't know, but he was a committed young man, and he toured with Paul on Paul's second and third missionary journeys. And he remained with the apostle during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. Later on, Timothy became a pastor in the church of Ephesus, where Paul had once been, Hebrews 13 tells us that Timothy was imprisoned at one point, And that at the end of the apostle Paul's life, when Timothy was serving there as that pastor in Ephesus, Paul wrote him two letters that we know first and second Timothy. The point is, all three of these men knew the Thessalonian believers well. They all were involved in the gospel ministry in this city, and the Thessalonian believers were precious to all three of them. Number two, the recipients of the gospel. Paul writes in verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians. You need to know that Greek term translated church. Maybe you've heard it before, ekklesia. It's an important New Testament term. It carries this nuance of being called out, but then formed as an assembly, a gathering. It's just a, a broad term. It was a term applied to many types of gatherings in the ancient Roman world. They could be civil ecclesias or Religious ecclesias, non-religious gatherings, assemblies. It was used in a general sense. That's the way it's used in the, in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used to refer to Israel. But only in the sense of at times being an assembly, a gathering, or being depicted as a community in some way. In the New Testament, it is the technical term to refer to an assembly of believers in Christ. Only in the New Testament is the term ekklesia used as a reference to people like that. It's used in the New Testament as a reference to all races, all ethnic groups in the body of Christ. A body which took on that meaning, a body which began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This meaning and reference is not found in the Old Testament. It would be wrong to refer to the Old Testament people of God as Israel, as the church. There's a distinction between the two. The church is always distinguished from Israel and her ongoing purpose in God's plan. One more explanation about the church. Sometimes "ecclesia" in the New Testament refers to all believers in the world a synonym for the entire body of Christ. For example, in Colossians 1.18, where it says Christ is the head of the body, the church. But most of the time in the New Testament, it's actually used to refer to a particular assembly, a particular group in a particular location. Sometimes to all the little individual sit- assemblies in a city, one city, or perhaps to just one assembly in a city. You'll find it used that way so many times. For example, Romans 16, verse 1, where it mentions Phoebe there, and it says Phoebe was a servant of the church which is it, which is at Centria. Romans 16, verse 5, Paul writes, Greet the church that is in their house. He writes the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God which is at Corinth. It's used that way. I'll tell you why it's never used it's never used this way in Greek literature it's never used this way in Hellenistic Jewish writings or Christian literature of the era it's never used to designate a building And yet that's how it's commonly used right Where do you work? Oh I work at the up at the church. Where's your office? It's up at the church. Where are you going today? Oh we're going over to the church. I need to stop by the church and get something. We use that commonly We understand what we mean. But technically, when I come here to get something out of my office and there's nobody else here, the church isn't here. That's you. It's the people. So just keep that in mind. Now back to our verse. Paul uses the term here in verse 1 to make it clear to whom he's writing to. The entire ecclesia, the church body in this town, Thessalonica. But since the ecclesia term could be used to refer to another assembly of people there, a civil assembly or a a non-religious assembly, even a pagan gathering, Paul adds this wonderful expression to elaborate on the spiritual nature of the gathering he's writing to, the church. Verse 1 goes on to say, In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what that's saying. It's confirming that the church is made up only of true believers. And that is so crucial in understanding the difference even between Israel and the church. God's chosen nation in the Old Testament, Israel, and the New Testament church. Israel was an ethnic group of people. God made a covenant with that ethnic nation, and it included both saved Jews, which is sometimes called the remnant, and unsaved Jews, both, part of the covenant nation. In other words, Israel in the Old Testament was not a reference only to those in a saving relationship with the Lord. But in the New Testament, it's different. Church is never meant to be viewed that way. The term "ecclesia" is used only to refer to those who are born again, genuine followers of Christ. Now, granted... It is true that in any given local assembly, it is possible, regrettably, that an unbeliever could be part of the organized membership of that local body. We don't know people's hearts. We have to go by their profession. Sometimes later on, it begins to be more clear that somebody may not be actually a believer. But from God's perspective, that never happens. That individual who might be on the rolls of a local assembly, from God's perspective, that, mem- that person was never actually a member of the true church. The church is made up of born-again followers of Christ. So here in verse 1, instead of writing to some generic, non-religious, or even pagan assembly, Paul wrote to true believers, which he describes as an assembly that is first of all in God the Father. But he can't even leave it there. He has to narrow it even more, distinguish the recipients further. It's not a Jewish assembly. They might say that. No, the church is made up of people in the Lord Jesus Christ. The full title of the Savior is what Paul uses, combining in one phrase all the major aspects of his identity and his redemptive work. Let's look at those terms. Lord, what a significant title it's the term frequently used in reference to deity. It's describing the Lord Christ as the creator of the world and the sovereign ruler of the world. He is the one who rules over his people. He's therefore the one to whom we owe full allegiance, the lordship of Christ. Jesus, that's the name that means Jehovah saves. It was the name given to him at his birth, Matthew chapter 1. It's the name that points to his humanity. And third, he's the Christ, a title that means the anointed one. The Greek term for Messiah, the one promised by God to fulfill his plan of redemption. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in him. And by the way, don't overlook something grammatical here. It's so small, and, and most would not even care about it, but we should care about it. There's only one preposition, that little word in, in front of that whole phrase. He did not say, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. What's so important about that? That one preposition that controls the whole phrase indicates that those are all combined talking about the reality of Jesus' equality with the Father in the triune God. It's even a grammatical way of confirming his deity. So the point of that whole descriptive phrase is to make it clear that it's the true church that Paul was writing to, and the true church is made up of genuine followers of Christ, those who are in this vital and spiritual union with God the Father and Christ the Son. Gentile believers, or excuse me, genuine believers are not those who just believe some facts about Jesus. We call that easy believism. It's rampant in our world. They just believe some things about Jesus, therefore they're okay. No, genuine believers are those in him, those who participate in the very life of God and the life of Christ. That's why Paul said about himself in Galatians 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's a true believer. And my favorite is Colossians 3, 3. You talk about assurance of salvation. Listen to what it says to the believers in Colossae. You have died, meaning you've you've died to your former identity, and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. I mean, the Son is, is hidden within the the mystery of the Godhead, secure in the Godhead, and we're in Christ who's in the Godhead. What a mystery, an incomprehensible mystery of what it means to be a Christian. That God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the triune God lives within the believer and the believer lives in them and we share that divine and eternal life. This was true of the believers at the church in Thessalonica. That church found its unique identity in that. It found its unique identity in union or relationship with God the Father and the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, number three, the essence of the gospel is found here in the salutation. Two very important words. Verse one Grace to you and peace. Grace to you. That would be a great name for a like a radio, radio program or something. Anyway, grace to you and peace. This essentially is a blessing, a blessing being pronounced upon them. But though he wishes this for them in their experience, it also succinctly summarizes the very heart, the essence of the gospel message. Those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation find grace and peace. Let's look at those two wonderful terms. The word grace is that term that highlights the unmerited benefits given by God to the believer in Christ. It is only by grace that a lost person can be saved and rescued. It's only by grace that we can be forgiven from our sin and be able to stand and have a relationship with holy God. And that salvation is a is only by a transaction that's completely free of charge. Grace, the most wonderful word, it is God by His grace who plucks lost sinners out of the clutches of the world's system and the world's way of thinking and the world's values and priorities and goals, and gives them new life, spiritual life, and wipes the slate clean of their sin, past, present, and future, and forgives them, and places them, Bible says, in his own family, adopts them, and places them in union with himself and the son. That's the only reason someone can be saved, because God is gracious. It's not due to something good within them. It's not due to something good that they do. It's not due to something bad that they don't do. It's strictly the sovereign work of a gracious God. And God's giving of grace to His people doesn't stop just at the point of our rescue, our salvation. And that's the point of the verse here, of Paul wishing them grace. God continually gives grace then. I mean, grace is the way we begin our walk with Christ, but we need more grace. He gives grace. He gives strength. He gives encouragement in each and every trial that we face along the way, no matter what it is. It's also by His grace that He teaches us something, something very important, and that's how to obey Him and live a holy life. We find that in Titus 2, verse 12, where it says, by grace, or God's grace instructs us in something. Titus two twelve. God's grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's evident in someone's life that they're a follower of Christ, that God is giving them grace and strength in their trials, and that God is instructing them in how to live a holy life and to obey Him. It is by grace that God continually does that, enables us to do His will, a continual bestowing of grace. And the writers wish that for the readers. Notice they also wish them peace. Now, first of all, this is a reminder to us of our great need, and that is peace with God. You see, due to our sin, we are not only estranged from God. That's not even the most serious thing. Due to the sin that we're born with, God is estranged from us. Scripture teaches that God is at enmity with us. Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12, God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation every day against lost people. Verse 12 says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready, meaning for judgment. But Jesus, by his death on the cross, graciously canceled out our debt of sin our sinful offenses against god listen to colossians 2:14 christ having canceled out their certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross because of that work of christ to satisfy god's holy wrath against sin and through our trust in him alone and the work that he accomplished the barrier That prevents us from knowing God and having fellowship with Him. The barrier was taken away. To say it differently, by His grace and through our faith, we're justified in His sight. We have a standing before Him. We're reconciled to Him. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1 says. But here's the point of the peace in verse 1. It's even beyond that. Because of the harmony now with God, man can also enjoy peace that is inward. Inward tranquility. Inward wholeness. Let's put it back in the prepositional forms. Because we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God. In every kind of circumstance that goes along with daily life in a fallen Broken, disappointing, twisted world. And that inward peace is especially experienced in our daily lives due to prayer. How do I know that? Psalm four, excuse me, Philippians four, verse six and seven. Psalms is in the Old Testament, I do know that. Philippians four, six and seven. Paul writes, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests, including your burdens, be known to God. Seven, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let's summarize these two words. Grace is God's undeserved favor to the sinner. And it's seen in the form that it takes of complete forgiveness of our sin and the granting of eternal life. Ephesians 2, for by grace we are saved, not by works. And it's only possible this grace because of the saving work of God through Christ and because of that grace that has given us peace with God. He gives us continual grace to know the peace of God in every trial. So that's how the greeting ends with that blessing being pronounced of grace and peace. Just a brief explanation about some translations. One in particular has more verbiage after that. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an additional phrase not found in the most reliable manuscripts. Scribes, as they would copy through the years tended to add things. They never deleted things. They just added things from other sources. You find that additional phrase in Second Thessalonians, but it's not found in, in the best manuscripts. And so they sort of added it in, you know, to smooth things over, to make it fit their own understanding. The true version ends with the way we ended it, grace to you and peace. I don't know if you're wondering this. Is it hard to make a sermon out of a salutation? The answer is yes. It's very hard. I'm exhausted. But even in this salutation, there's important theology found here. And since there's important theology found here, there's important implications that we need to think through. If you're in Christ, first of all, understand your complete identity. I mean it's right for us to to understand our identity that we're in Christ. Yes, that is true, but your complete identity is that you're also a member of the church. That's part of your identity. You're a part of the body of Christ. A body in which there's no distinction amongst the members when it comes to ethnicity or di- dignity of personhood or gender or anything. There's No difference in the gospel goals that we're striving towards as members of the church. That's part of our identity. And so since it's part of our identity, it only makes sense that we commit ourselves to be faithful to the church. I've said this before to people. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a true believer who's gone rogue, who's just kind of out there on their own, there's no such thing found as a true believer is not a, a committed, functioning, faithful participant in a local ecclesia. That's part of our identity. Second, this ought to prompt gratitude. Be thankful for the grace of God. The grace of God that saves us from our sin. We'd have no hope if it wasn't for God's grace. The grace that rescues us. The grace that places us in the church. The grace that continually goes on to strengthen us and to instruct us to live holy lives, and and to give us the comfort we need to endure all trials. And since God is gracious to us, you know what makes sense? That saved sinners, of all people, ought to be gracious toward other people. We're the recipients of God's grace. It only makes sense that we'd show grace to others. Even if they're flawed people, you don't probably know any flawed people. I do. You probably don't know any difficult people. I do. You, you probably don't know anyone that has disappointed you or hurt you in some way. But if you ever cross one, if God ever adds that to your experience, remember that you're the recipient of grace. And be gracious. It comes out in the way we speak, doesn't it, most of all? Speak graciously at all times. Lastly, choose to rest in the peace of God. Peace of God that's available in every circumstance. Choose to daily rest in that. My prayer for you, if you don't know Christ, if you've never come to that point of realizing that you you stand hopeless before a holy God because of your sin, then my prayer is that you would come to understand and experience His grace. And because of that, to experience what it means to have peace with God then. And then beyond that, to begin a life of walking with Christ where you know His peace, even in the worst of circumstances. My prayer is that your heart be open to trust in Christ alone for all that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little verse that gets us going into the study of this wonderful book that's going to be so helpful for us. Thank you for the reminder of our identity, who we are, that we're in God the Father and in Christ the Son, sharing divine life. And we're part of a body made up of other people who who share the same divine life, the church. Help us to be grateful that you're a gracious God, Help us to be gracious to others. Help us to remember the peace that can be ours as we rest in the knowledge of Christ and what he's done for us. I do pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, who's not following the Son, that you'd open their hearts to believe. In Christ's name, amen.